0: Thank Thank you so much, Um, and I I just have have to say to those those folks who are here in chapel chapel after you were in chapel yesterday and and you had a four hour hour class with me last night, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. and there's so much more to go, I was just thinking, uh, just just saying earlier, right before chapel, that my class is like watching Lord of the Rings extended editions, in three consecutive nights except except it's extemporaneous dialogue. So, um, okay, I am here today to talk about truth in a time of lies. But just like yesterday, I'm going to begin with a little bit of a personal story about how several years ago my wife and I in our Christian community kind of took a detour that a lot of other people don't take, that we went against the grain of our church we went against the grain of our peer group and we made a stand that a lot of other people disagreed with rather vehemently um, i'm speaking of course of our decision not to tell kids that there was a santa claus uh, this actually did cause like a lot of consternation but anyway um, i'm going to talk about that and believe me, i'm going to bring it back around And there's a reason why we did not tell our kids that there was a Santa Claus. Now, I'm very sorry if anyone was under any lingering impressions that there was a Santa Claus, but I guess now's the time. and, and there, there was, was a reason why, why. and, and it, it was connected, connected to, to a painful, painful childhood, childhood memory, and I can't tell if it was a pain, and I, I finally, I think I figured out why it was a painful childhood memory, and, and as I tell you this, I'm not in any way, I had the greatest parents in the history of the world, so let me just say that, I had a great childhood, but I remember the first argument that I lost, and the first argument that I lost was a passionate, heated argument with my cousin, my older cousin, whom I idolized, I mean, he was the guy, I, could, I couldn't wait to get to his house as a young, young kid because he was listening to contraband music like Rush. And I couldn't wait to hear, like that song, Tom Sawyer, it just sounded so rebellious. Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and so one night, laying there in his room, we started to have this discussion and he said, you know there's no Santa Claus. At which point I was indignant. Of course, of course, there's a Santa Claus. And I mustered all of my best arguments. I have presents as promised, and I have written proof. It says from Santa, how about that? Documentary proof. That's some of the best proof in a court of law. If you can bring a document into court and it says from Santa. No, your parents did that. No, (laughs) sir. I can tell you why I know my parents did not do that, because they told me they did not do that. I have their testimony. I have documentary evidence. Your parents are not telling you the truth. What, how dare you, sir? How dare you, sir? If this was the 18th century, I would have pulled out the glove. I would have smacked him across the face and we would have been headed to Jersey where everything was legal to have the duel. And I was indignant and I had ended the night confident that I was victorious. I had my documentary evidence, I had my testimonial evidence from a trustworthy source and I had vanquished my older cousin who might have cool music tastes, but knows nothing about the mysticism and wonders of one Claus Santa. And so we're driving home from Indianapolis where my cousin lived and I very confidently declared to my mother and father You won't believe what Jeff said last night. What? He said, there's no Santa Claus. Can you believe it? Silence, uncomfortable glance between mother and father, more silence. And I said, oh. And a single tear rolled down my cheek. And I still, it's so funny, you know how there are certain memories from childhood that you can almost conjure up that moment and you can feel it again. I can feel it and I still can't decide if I was more sad about no Santa or if my pride was more wounded about losing the argument. To this day, I don't know. But I remember that feeling. And I remember it so distinctly that when my wife and I first got married and uh, she got pregnant with our first kid, I said, you know we're not telling our kids there's a Santa, right? And she was like, oh, of course not. That's why I married her. We didn't even have to discuss it. We were already totally unified in this. And she said, you know, I don't want some of the most important first words my kids hear me say around the holidays to be a lie. And I was like, okay, that makes perfect sense. All right, now I'm not, okay just let me pause and let me preemptively say, I'm not condemning your parents. I don't, I'm not, okay? I'm not condemning my parents. I'm just saying, they were lying. But anyway, um, and it's funny in the recent weeks and months, that story of my childhood has come back to me. It's come back to me in an interesting way. And why is it? Well, The title of this chapel talk is Truth in a Time of Lies. And I don't think that I have ever lived in my adult life in an environment where more falsehoods or more passionately believed, even by the people of God, than they are right now. Now, people have long believed falsehoods. I mean, people have long sort of had casual conspiracy theories. I've known, I can't even count the number of people who sort of casually kind of sort of are pretty convinced that a whole bunch of people up to including the mob and possibly space aliens were involved in uh, the killing of John F. Kennedy uh, Jr. I, I know that uh, or, or killing of John F. Kennedy I know that uh, there are people you know um, heck some of my son's friends who go down rabbit holes about the moon landing yada 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 but it's not something that defines them like even if they sort of casually believe things like you know, Kyrie Irving at one point may or may not have believed the earth was flat, but you know, that didn't define him. I'm talking about not just sort of casual conspiracies, but lies and falsehoods that are defining the way we operate in the body politic and the way we treat each other, the way in which we treat each other. And I began to, you know, think long and hard about how did this happen? How did this happen? And that's when I reconnected with my Santa Claus story. And I remember, why, what was my trump card in that argument? What was my trump card? My trump card in that argument wasn't the documentary evidence of, from Santa. It was the fallback. I had a trusted institution. There was a trusted institution. That trusted institution was the mother, father, figure, uh, leadership of, the, of our household, that trusted institution, I appealed to them as the dominant authority because I didn't have the means or, meth- or mechanisms available or resources available to me to investigate Santa's independence, scientifically and, um, and methodically. So I had to trust somebody, I had to trust somebody. So I trusted mom and dad, pretty darn trustworthy and proved to be trustworthy my whole life But in that instance, instance, they let me down. Now, I use that only as an example, only to say, this is one of the ways in which we have become vulnerable to lies, is that we have lost trust in the institutions that we have previously depended on to communicate truth. We have lost trust. Now, why have we lost trust? Well, there's two kinds of distrust that I think are dominant in the United States right now. One is earned distrust. In other words, we have lost trust because we've been legitimately let down by institutions. And another kind of distrust is what I call manufactured distrust. And so what we have coming together right now in sort of a perfect storm in a highly polarized environment is a combination of earned, distrust and manufactured distrust to create a trust crisis in this country that is leading us to believe at the edges, frankly, some wild, wild stuff. Wild, dangerous stuff. Okay, so what are some of the earned distrust? I mean, we can list some of it off the top of our head. We've seen media make mistakes. We've seen media bias lead to blind spots. I mean, one of the worst examples I can think of, of media bias and media media blind spots and misleading stories in recent years was centered around, and I wrote about it this morning in my morning newsletter, which you all, as I'm sure, are already paying members of the dispatch, have already received and read, so this is old news to you. But I talked about one of the worst examples of earned distrust was the story of the Covington Catholic incident on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial a couple of years ago, where about a 15 or 20 second, for those who don't know about this, there was a bunch of kids from a school in in, in, um, a a school called Covington Catholic in Covington, Kentucky, it's in Northern Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati, who go every year to the March for Life. Um, A lot of Catholic schools send their whole student bodies to the March for Life. So this was Covington Catholic, no exceptions, sent their students to the March for Life. While they were there, they're just kind of hanging out, having a good time. And there was this group of people who, uh, if you've gone and spent much time in Philly or Washington or New York, you sometimes run across them they they're, They go by the term of um, black Hebrew nationalists. They're a, to call them fringe is to insinuate that they're, even fringe. I mean, they're fringe of fringe of fringe. Very small group of people who, I don't know their theology all that well, but they kind of believe that they're they're like the the true Israelites. And they're very loud and aggressive about it. And they really get in your face. And so they're in in, in the face of these Covington Catholic kids, and the Covington Catholic kids are kind of confused by it all, and they have this weird sort of back and forth. And then into the middle of the group walks this activist. I believe his name was, oh, shoot, I can't remember. Nathan Phillips, that might be wrong. Uh-oh, I'm just creating some earned distrust right here if I say the wrong name. Hey, but a Native American activist just walks into the middle of the whole group of Covington Catholic kids kind of beating on a drum and chanting. All a very confusing thing. Like if I'm 15 years old or 16 years old while all of this is happening, I have no idea what I would do absolutely no clue. I might laugh, I might be uh, confused, but there was about a 15-20 second bit of video that made it on the internet that made it look as if these kids, some of them wearing MAGA hats, had surrounded this Native American elder and were trying to physically intimidate him. That's what the 15-20 to second video looked like. And people went volcanic. I mean furious, they were furious. And so deluge of threats fell upon the college, I mean the the school, on the parents. People tried to muster up campaigns to have the businesses of the parents of these kids closed down, have their livelihoods ruined. The one kid who stood in front of the Native American activists and there was a short snapshot of him and he kind of had a bemused look on his face and it was characterized as a smirk And all across Twitter, people said, that's a punchable MAGA face. It was vicious. It was awful. I'd never seen anything like it, this sort of immediate gang tackling off a 20 second clip of video. But then, turns out the whole video was online. And the actual reality was about 180 degrees from the truth. That in fact, this group didn't surround this man, that this man, walked into the middle of them. And the surrounding was them actually parting ways for him to go past until he confronted this one kid who quite obviously didn't know what to do. And instead of having a smirk, his face went through the whole range of of emotions that says, I'm only like 15 right here and I don't know what to do. And it was not smirking, it was not arrogance, it was just confusion. In other words, everything was 180 degrees the opposite of the initial story and people's lives were being ruined. So what happens is this guy who is caught in this moment sues the Washington Post, CNN, New York Times for these initial misleading stories and received confidential settlements that I think were pretty nice. Um, so there was accountability. So that's earned distrust. It's earned distrust. What is manufactured distrust? Well. Manufactured distrust is a phenomenon that we see that when people see that news media outlets do things wrong and see that there's an appetite for people decrying the media, they make an industry out of undermining trust in institutions. Sometimes they do it through flat-out lies. Sometimes they do it through exaggerations. Sometimes they do it by pointing out if there's 20 correct stories and one incorrect story, pointing out and focusing on the one incorrect story as if all the correct stories don't even exist. And so you have an entire industry in the United States of America that exists to take the distrust that's already forming, especially if it's an institution that we have a partisan antipathy towards, and turning it into, and manufacturing more and more distrust. So that our dominant position is this, So I I write for The Dispatch, which is a new uh, media company just started by a a group of conservative journalists. Uh, But I also am a columnist for Time Magazine, which is mainstream media, okay? And I will write things in mainstream media. And all of a sudden, my social media feed will fill with, I don't read anything on Time Magazine. Oh, that's from Time Magazine, that's fake news. I'm like, it's me. Like, I'm not fake news. I'm not perfect, but I'm not fake news. But it's this constant manufactured distrust that discounts anything based on where it came from. And if it didn't come from a source we'd like, we don't listen to it at all. And so that's where we are. And then you add on top of that, this sort of partisan antipathy that I talked about yesterday where people on right and left don't like each other at all increasingly. And what do you create? You create an atmosphere where you don't have the traditional outlets and ways of discerning truth are not trusted anymore. They're not trusted anymore. So I didn't even have to ask my parents about the Easter bunny. I already knew. I already knew the trust was gone about you know, mythical creatures that distribute presents on Christian holidays. Like, no more. You can't sell me that line again. And so that's what we live in. And we live in this, because we have all of this distrust, we often end up making illogical decisions because we're filtering our understanding of the world through all of this distrust. So you'll have people who say, I will absolutely not trust anything I read from the New York Times, but have you seen this scoop on the Pope in PatriotLibertyEagle.net? And you're thinking, wait, how did we get there? I just described how we got there. That we live in a world of earned distrust, partisan antipathy, and on top of that, that partisan antipathy creates a market for manufactured distrust, and here we are. And where is here? Where is here is where a majority of people in our demographic, of the demographic of most of the people in this room, not everybody in this room, but most of the people in this room, white evangelical, a majority of the people in our different demographic now believe a lie and a rather important lie right now, that the election of 2020 was stolen from the rightful winner, Donald Trump. That is not true. It's not true. Not only is it not true, there isn't a reasonable basis for believing that it is true. It's not something that's even truly contestable. Now, does that mean that everything that happened when 150 million people voted was completely kosher? No. But does it mean that there was the the actual rightful winner is the winner? Yes. And does it mean that arguments to the contrary aren't just wrong but badly wrong? Yes. Yes, it's a hard thing for people to hear because there's an awful lot of smart people. You might know them. I'm gonna assume that none of you are in that category, but an awful lot of smart people, many of you know them, can tell you and fill you with a, they can project a wall of words that sound good, but none of them hold up to the slightest scrutiny. And that's a majority of people in the white evangelical demographic now believe a lie. They believe a lie, they spread a lie most of them unknowingly, most of them unknowingly, but they do. This is a hard truth, and it is hard to hear, but it's, it's true, it's true. And there's even another group of people emerging within, again, much within the church, who believe some really wild and scary lies right now. Um, how many people have heard of the QAnon theory? Okay, how many of you know what it is? Okay. Buckle up, y'all. Buckle up, okay? This is craziness. It's a belief that began to be spread by a entity known only as Q on a message board called 4chan, which never... I don't think 4chan exists in its present form anymore and has now down, gone to 8chan and then to 8kun. Do not look at these places, okay? I mean, it is like you know when there's a horror movie and like you open a door and behind the door are unspeakable sights, mixed with awful screaming and then you shut the door? That's like going to these sites. It's like, oh, 4chan.com. Yeah! Okay, off. And so just fringe of fringe of fringe. But this guy started to come forward with a theory named Q on this website that um, most of America and much of the world was run by, uh, I'm not making this up, I'm not making up the theory, the theory makes everything up, cannibal pedophiles, okay, and it's rocketing through the church. It was one of the dominant belief systems that resulted in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. You think, how could people, Americans, Christians, storm our own Capitol? Well, what if you believe that a bunch of cannibal pedophiles just fixed an election? Like you really believe it? You would think desperate times call for desperate measures. That's what I'm talking about when we say we live in a a time of lies. Okay, so what do we do about it? What do we do about it? First, we have to acknowledge it's hard to do anything about it because trust, once lost, is so hard to regain. You can't just go to friends and to neighbors and to, you know, family members and say, you really need to read the New York Times again. Like that's the worst thing you can say. That's like walking in in Star Wars to a Jedi family and saying, "The Sith have some good ideas? Like that just doesn't work. Or, you know, people have said to me and where I live in Tennessee, they say, David, could you talk to my mom? And I, I'm like, and, I'm so, well, how, and my question is always this, is she Q-curious or is she Q-committed? And they say, Q-committed. I'm like, I'll just love her from afar. And when I talk to her, we'll talk about Tennessee football because, If a mainstream media, Ivy League educated, never Trump lawyer walks into the room, it is like Palpatine going into the Jedi temple. I mean, that is the way it feels. So somebody is deeply committed to a lie, it is often very difficult to argue them out of a lie. We have seen a lot of this in, in sort of the dark recesses of fundamentalism, for example, where people have lost trust in traditional religious institutions, they've lost trust in, Uh, Churches, in conventional churches, mainstream churches, and they veer towards hardcore fundamentalist sex. And one of the things that you don't do is you don't browbeat a person out of fundamentalism. You don't browbeat a person out of much of anything, really, honestly. You love people, you speak the truth, you're patient, you're kind. That's what you do when somebody is deeply committed Now, when somebody is what I would call Q curious or lie curious, it's a whole different analysis. Because I then put the emphasis on curious rather than Q or curious rather than lie. I take that as an invitation, let's talk. Because if you're curious, we got a lot of ground to cover. I've got some great news for you if you're curious about Q. There aren't a gang of cannibal pedophiles. That's some good news running this country. Or if you're really worried about a lie around the election, I've got some great news. Your candidate may have lost, which is bad news for you, but the great news is our democracy is not fundamentally broken and we're not in the midst of an unconstitutional coup. Yay. So that's good news. And so, but when somebody is curious, then we should engage. Now what about me? What do I do? How do I avoid, as I am setting off on this journey, of, of academics, going into professional life, going into a life uh, in, within a church community, and a church family, what do I do? Well, I, it first begins with a promise. It begins with a promise that you make. And I, and I really like these words from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, I have it here in my iPad. Hold on one quick second, because I don't want to mess up the quote. I kind of messed it up last night. For that, I'm sorry. Here we go from Solzhenitsyn, uh, Soviet dissident, a dissident in the Soviet Union. I love this, This begin with a resolve. You can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph, but not through me, but not through me. What does that mean? What I like about it is has t- it has a couple of, it has some it has a acknowledgement and a resolution. The acknowledgement is we're people of limited strength and power. We can't stop the spread of lies, we can't. You know, as much as I want to, and I have a you know, decent sized Twitter following and all of that stuff, I got my prized little blue check mark, but lots of people have blue check marks and we fight and argue all the time on Twitter and I can't stop lies. I can stop some people from believing in lies, but I can't stop lies, but I can make, that's the acknowledgement. We can't, not any one of us can stop lies, but we can have a resolution to live your life and to say that the lie is not gonna come through me. So that's, you have to start with that. You have to start with that baseline level of resolve. The lie will not come through me. Then here's the tough question. Wait a minute. How do I know what's truth and lies? How do I know? I've got a a spirit, a a a, um, a theological suggestion, and I've got a practical suggestion. So my theological suggestion is marinate in the Westminster Catech- the Catechism, specifically around the ninth commandment. Okay, I'm going to put my thing my Uh, microphone down for one second I'm gonna read this awesomeness that was written hundreds of years ago okay hold on by the way if you're gonna use an iPad don't have the awesome new um, floating keyboard because you can't actually flip it around very easily and you leads to awkward pauses and speeches like this but bear with me All right, here we go. Listen to this. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, and it's about the duties of the Ninth Commandment. This is good stuff. People back then knew some things. All right, the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and woman, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Appearing and standing from the truth, standing for the truth from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and all other things whatsoever. And here's another cool part: in a time of negative polarization, a charitable esteem for our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report. I'll say that again. A ready receiving of a good report is about as countercultural as you're going to get right now, and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report. In other words, have skepticism about the evil report. Discourage talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Man, that is countercultural stuff right there. That is completely the opposite of the entire partisan media culture in the United States. So think Westminster, don't think Twitter. All right. And how do you do that practically? Here's what I would say practically. The single best way that I have figured out to insulate myself from lies and to understand the truth is I make this very simple resolve always read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. Okay, so in other words, if I hear a news report and I'm inclined to disagree with it or I'm inclined to be suspicious of it, what I'm gonna immediately do is I'm gonna try to find the most convincing, best qualified person making the case. So for example, let me just, let's me let just touch all the third rails that ever exist anywhere, okay? So for example, it's very contentious right now uh, within the church to talk about critical race theory, okay? So here's what I would say. If you are a Christian in good faith trying to navigate arguments about critical race theory, should you begin, should you do all of your inquiry around critical race theory by reading only opponents of critical race theory? No, no. Because you know what you're not going to really truly fully understand if you read only opponents? you're not gonna really truly fully understand critical race theory. So if there's a contentious idea, read its proponents and then read its opponents. Read them both, the proponent and the opponent. But this is the way we do things now. We hear of a new theory and we go to our favorite website or our favorite talking head or our favorite podcaster and we say, I wonder what they said about it and what they said about it is what I'm gonna think about it. And that's not how we can do this. So read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. When you hear a challenging idea, read about the idea from the architects of the idea, from the advocates for the idea before you read the opponents, but always read the opponents. Always read the pushback. And then overlay that, saturate yourself in this ninth commandment. Have a reluctance to believe initially the bad report. That doesn't mean that the bad report isn't true it does mean that there should be a burden of proof. If in the worst of the report, the higher the burden of proof. If you're gonna tell me something like about Bill Gates, negative, like that he thinks that Marvel movies are better than DC, which is fundamentally wrong, um, that's wrong, but it's not bad wrong. It's just, you know, wrong, wrong. So I'm not gonna, I'm, I, you're not gonna have to prove to me too much that Bill Gates believe that Marvel movies are better than DC. But if I hear a story about Bill Gates that's bad wrong, like he wants to implant a chimp in you through the vaccines that he's created, well, that's pretty bad. I'm gonna need to say, you're gonna have to show me your work there, dude. I gotta see the, the evidence. So the worse the report is, raise the, bear, the burden of proof higher and higher read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view, learn about new ideas from the advocate for the idea, overlay all of it with a willingness to believe a good report, an unwillingness to believe a bad report, and your own personal resolve. I resolve to live by integrity. The lie may come, the lie may triumph, but not through you. Okay, I'm gonna apologize in advance because you're gonna hear some of that later tonight if you're in my class, some of it, not all of it. Um, But thank you, it's been a real pleasure being with you these last couple of days.